You up for handing the mic around and stuff still? Okay. Now, before I take questions, I want to try to synthesize what I was, the point I was trying to make this morning. If you turn to Hebrews 3, there's one paragraph in Hebrews 3 that I think um, epitomizes the tension that I'm trying to pick up. There is a tension between the uh, assurance of salvation issue and perseverance. Um, and Rome resolves the tension one way. They hold on to, you must persevere, and so they eschew assurance. And then others hold on to assurance and then sort of ignore or pretend they're not there, that you must persevere passages. And there's one paragraph in Hebrews 3 that I think the chal- I would challenge to say we need to be able to say both the beginning and end of this paragraph. We need to be able to speak both ways. If you're tempted to think it's either or, either we have assurance or we must persevere to the end, then I will show you this paragraph. Hebrews 3.1. On the side of assurance, notice the confidence with which the author speaks. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Any any. Any lack of assurance there, he is confident in how he addresses them. Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house, as more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now note the end of this paragraph. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now I think it's remarkable here. The spirit-inspired author of Scripture includes himself in the conditional sentence in verse 6. We, including the author of Hebrews. And so we ought to be able to talk both ways. We ought to be able to deal with both realities. Holy brethren, partakers in a heavenly calling. And we're, we really are Christians if we make it to the end. And in one paragraph, there are both realities laid out. And the temptation will be to hold on to one and ignore the other. And I, and I tried to show this morning how Rome does one and many evangelicals do the other. And that the, the needle we got a thread is, I think, perfectly demonstrated in this paragraph. That, that's, I just want to be clear. I recognize there is a tension. I recognize it would be a whole lot easier if we just had to hold on to one of the poles. I think biblically we have to hold on to both. Um, and I think the way we do that is by confidence in the sovereignty of God. It's not for nothing. I mentioned this in the message. It's not for nothing that the doctrines of the sovereignty of God over salvation and election, even here, holy calling, heavenly calling, came out of the Reformation because they understood if perseverance depended on man and man's willpower, there could be no assurance. If it's true, and it is, that we must persevere to the end, and if that perseverance ultimately depends on my willpower, my choice, then there absolutely can be no assurance. If, however, God gifts faith and God perseveres faith, then you can have both ends of this statement. You can have assurance and we must make it to the end. That's 
in short, the synthesis I'm trying to put out. Now, questions on... Yes, sir. Well, Mike, Mike, the mic's coming. The, the three people who listen to the podcast want to hear the question. It was helpful in your introduction that you mentioned that um, he studied Romans 3 extensively in the theses, and his work came out of that, um, having been spending time in Romans lately, just to see that it's just so clear that, you know, salvation is by faith alone. And then in my own life, um, with my initial uh, salvation, was encouraged to have a verse and have a date. Today's synthesis of having that all together, and it's important what I am believing now and seeing that um, I have seen growth in my life and knowing that I have a time I can look back. The date is not so important as to see very clearly there was a time when God regenerated me into a child of God, and I've seen the growth. And so by that... I can see that I have assurance. Amen. Amen. Yeah, frequently when I ask people about loved ones or family members, I don't ask, are they Christians? I'll ask, are they evidencing the new birth? Are they evidencing the marks of the Spirit of God in them? You know, which would be a list of things like they're listening to God's word, they're confessing sin, they're gathering with believers, they're loving the brethren, they're um, trying to please God. Like Those are the marks of a Christian, right? And... You know, because so often I'll ask, well, if I if I ask somebody are they Christian, they just tell me about a decision they made, which may or may not be the beginning of their faith. But I'm far more interested. Tell me about them right now. Tell me about the fruit they're bearing now. Tell me about their life now, Dennis. Uh, yeah, you talk. You know how the Catholics believe, and yeah. then there's the Christians that believe you're saved no matter, long as you can point to the date, and you could be living. But there are a lot of Christians who believe that you can lose your salvation. Ar- don't Armenians believe that? Yeah, Ar- Armenians, not Armenians. Armenian. Armenian is a nationality. And, Armenian uh, is a theological position. Yes. Very, yes. Uh, very strong Christians believe that. Can yeah. you talk about that a little bit too? Maybe backsliding? Sure. And very, well, well I'll be, you know. and I'll be honest with you. In one sense, I have more commonality... And with the, the aspect of believer, if I had to pick the two errors, and I think they're errors, once, one would be that you can lose your salvation. I think that's erroneous. I don't think that's biblical. The other, the sort of once saved, always saved, doesn't matter what's going on in my life. I have more commonality with the, um, the people who believe you can lose your salvation because both of us will take stubborn, unrepentant sin in a person's life seriously. So my sister's uncle is, is part of a, a Assembly of God church. And one of their, the, the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostals, their, their official statement, and this is, I mean, again, you can go verify. They believe you can lose the Holy Spirit. You can lose your salvation. Um, it, it, we're still brothers. It, we, dis, we have a legitimate disagreement on this point. So consequently, when, a, when somebody you know, falls, and, and the issue here is not do believers sin. Of course they sin. But when a believer falls into sin and others try to restore them and they get away from me and they're holding on to their sin, then... They're beginning that you're acting like you worship and serve somebody else, right? You're not listening to God's words. You're not listening to the brethren. They're going to treat that as 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 absolutely an emergency, as if heaven and hell are at stake. 
to which I would agree. Like, this, this is hugely important. And I've, I would rather, I have more agreement with that than people, and I'm, I'm, I don't hear this as often anymore, but, oh, it's not that, I mean, it's not like they're going to lose their salvation, right? You know, um, about someone doing, you know, it's like someone's shacked up with their boyfriend or girlfriend or somebody's, you know, whatever they're doing, and you sh- say, I'm concerned about it. Oh, it's not like they're going to lose, of course they're not going to lose their salvation, <laughs> We're pointing the thorns on a tree, and the more thorns show up, the more you start to wonder, could this be a thorn tree? Now, the, the sticky reality for us is we bear both types of fruit, right? I mean, First John is clear, but First John is so black and white and binary. Greek helps a bit understanding what's being said. But that's why that Second Peter passage to me was so helpful. First, finding assurance as a believer is we growing. What am I becoming more like? Am I growing more and more into a follower of Christ who struggles with sin? Or am I more and more becoming a worshiper of sin who pretends to follow Christ? Which one is defining me more and more? Which one's bearing more fruit? Um, and that's what we're looking to. Not some, because I mean, people wrestle with, well, okay, how much obedience? You're growing, right? I mean, how much air do I have to breathe to be alive? If you're alive, you're going to keep breathing. Um, it's, the, it's the hallmark of being alive. Um, so, First John two. The path, if you look at the notes, the reference I give in First John two. Um, where's my notes? Oh dear. Um, thank you, Matthew. I should probably have all my documents out in front of me. I'm trying to. There it is. Okay. So, so Dennis, if you have the bulletin um, under two B two, no two B one, two B two. 2B2, 2B2, doobie doobie doo, right? Um, those who fall away are never saved. 1 John 2.19 gives us one category. So 1 John 2.19 says, They departed from us to show they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have not departed. But as it is, they departed to show they were not of us. Now, I would qualify and say the other possibility is this, a, this is a genuine child of God who's walking in darkness, and the Lord will leave the 99 and go get them. And so even when we do church discipline, and what we're doing in church discipline is in effect saying we no longer find your profession of faith credible due to your unrepentant sin. You say you may say you love Jesus, but it's clear you love something else, right? And so what we're saying in that moment is we don't believe, based on the evidence we're seeing, I was talking actually to your wife outside about this earlier in the, uh, the in-between time. What we're saying is I will never tell someone you're not a Christian. I suppose if you could work a miracle and blaspheme Christ, I could tell you you're not a Christian. Because then you'd have to have a demon or something. But apart from that, what I'll say to someone is not, if we're talking, that you're not a Christian. I I see no biblical grounds to come to the conclusion you're a Christian. I I see no basis for it, right? And my vantage point, it's not something I would say all the time, but the strongest thing I'll say to someone is, look, based on what's going on in your life, based on what you're telling me, I don't see any basis biblically to come to the conclusion I'm a child of God. How do you, if you're, you're insisting you're a Christian, tell me how you, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing, right? So the most I would ever say is biblically I see no basis for that conclusion. It's not something I'd say all the time, but that's the most I would say. So there is a category for people like David. The child was born, right? So at least nine months have taken place since David stole a man's wife, had him murdered, covered the whole thing up with a conspiracy.
Microphone number three. There we go. Um, they're back there with Mike. Um, hello. So, so it's possible when somebody, when somebody falls away, either by abandoning their confession of faith, they say they're an atheist now, whatever, or through habitual, unrepentant, persistent sin, either they are showing that they are not a believer to begin with, or they're a strayed sheep that the shepherd will come and restore. But those are biblically the only possibilities. There's not a possibility that they've lost their salvation. Jesus is emphatic. In fact, I wrote this in the margin. I didn't include it in the notes, but turn to John 10. Um, John 10. Hello? All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, in John 10, we get probably one of the clearest passages about this, but also notice who does the preserving, um, which gets back to my, my insistence that ultimately our faith is in God causing us to persevere, God working in us. So Jesus says in John ten twenty seven and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to them, me, them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The basis of my assurance is not my faithfulness, not my determination, but God's strength. So that's, that's how I would view that. So the, the reality of someone for a while appearing to be a believer. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the uh, so- sower, right? There's a seed that falls on rocky soil, and it springs up immediately with joy. There's emotions. They're raising their hands in the praise service. Their, their tears are coming down their eyes. There's the strong emotions. And yet, in times of trial, it dies and withers away and bears no fruit. There's another seed that springs up in thorny soil. And the cares and concerns of this world cause it not to bear fruit. Um, and it dies. And so Jesus is warning as he's going about in Judea about the possible responses to his ministry and his word. There's some hard soil that just hate it. And there's some, and we know this, vast multitudes gathered around Jesus. There weren't vast multitudes around the crucifixion, right? So there were a number of people who for a time got on the Jesus train, woohoo, and all excited. And no, especially when he was doing miracles. They, remember in John 6, they fall him to the other side of the lake after getting a meal, I mean, they're, they're excited. And in, by the end of John 6, most of those people are going home because of Jesus' hard teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, a lot of what Jesus is doing is actually helping, a lot of what Jesus is doing is helping false converts, false disciples see their state, unmasking it. He does the same thing in John 8 where he basically they try to kill him by the end of John 8, but he's talking to the Jews who had believed in his name. Um, so there is the possibility that people will profess Christ, appear to be genuine, emotions accompanying it, and then, poof, you know, a year later it's gone. And that's where I think First John would come in and say, okay, they departed from us to show they never were of us. Um, let me get back to one other thing. I don't need to know somebody's a Christian to treat them like a Christian. I, I, that's not my, those aren't categories I deal with. God knows who are his. If somebody professes Christ, and with that profession appears to be trying to follow him, I'll welcome as a brother or sister. I don't know my wife's a Christian in that sense. I have every reason to believe she is. I have no doubts she's a Christian. I don't know Pastor Daniel's a Christian. I am assured and confident he is, right? But 
like, he has to be on guard that he doesn't follow. I have to be on guard that I, I mean, I believe I'm a Christian. And if somehow I'm able to leave my wife and my family, go join Scientology, live out my days there and die, I would expect to go to hell. I'm not worried about that because the shepherd who's been guarding me when I start to stray the last 20 years, I'm sure would come and whoop me up long before I joined that cult. But I have to recognize the conceptual plot. If I were to do that, if I were somehow able to do that, I would expect to perish. But I'm not lying awake at night terrified that I'm going to go do that because I'm trusting in the shepherd looking over my soul, the shepherd who keeps me on the path. But those warnings, we don't, we don't do ourselves any favors by, not, by pretending those passages aren't there. Jesus, when dealing with lust, talks about life and death, heaven and hell. It's better to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand than what? To go into hell with your body whole. And we, 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 we emasculate the warning when we say it's not talking about heaven and hell. So Jesus talks about, in the context of lust, if you let this dominate you, you will perish. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, or these are the stakes. And we're like, well, no, that's not what it's talking about. No one's going to go to hell over. I, I want to let the Bible speak for itself on its own terms. So that's, that's the tension. That's the challenge, is, is getting things in balance. Um, sorry, I've gone off long astray from what you were asking, but I'm sorry. Um, who, oh, Alex Palmquist, mouse killer. Attempted mouse killer. Um, Hebrews 6, 4 mm-hmm. through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to mm-hmm. restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Yes. How does that fit in with this morning's message? <laughs> um, that is, that, no, no. Hebrews 6 is one of the most um, debated passages. I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I'm not going to punt. Uh, but Hebrews 6, and there's a couple warnings in Hebrews that are really strong um, that people wrestle with. So the, the classic takes on Hebrews 6, um, I think probably the most common view, I'm not sure I buy it, but the most common view is that we're not talking about salvation, but we're talking about near salvation. Somebody who's drawn close. Uh, so, so what you're wrestling with is um, in verse um, 4. It's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, so they've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So some would say, these are people who've been in the community of faith. They've experienced the blessing of being among Christians. They've seen the beauty of God's Word. They've seen its truthfulness. They, they know this is for real. They haven't actually been regenerated. They haven't actually come to faith in Jesus. They got that close, and they slipped back. And that's what it's talking about. That's one possibility. What? Well, that's, that's my wrestling with it. If that's the case, then these people can never be saved. No, and, that, and that's one possibility. Because some people would define, and in fact, I think a credible definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be, when the Holy Spirit has revealed truth to you, and you make a conscious decision to deny it, you're blaspheming the one who testified to the truth. So when Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you know perfectly well who and what I am. You're not making an error by missing me. You know exactly who I am. It's when he talks about the finger of God uh, and other things. 
when you're basically saying, we know that's the Messiah, but we so reject what he's saying and doing, let's say he's from Satan in order to kill him. That type of conscious, hard-hearted, high-handed rebellion, yeah, there's no turning back from that. Um, so taking that view, they plug that into here. Uh, this, is, this is, I think, what Piper holds, MacArthur holds, um, a lot of people hold to, and it works. Um, the other possibility, I haven't done a detailed study on this. I've got to talk to Jordan, wherever Jordan is. He told me he did a research paper in college. We we're going to talk about this. But the other possibility is what I think Ryrie throws out, which is that I tend to think there's something to that one here, that this is a hypothetical in other words, the Hebrew Christians think you can lose your salvation. And the argument would be, you can't lose your salvation because if, if you could, you could never get it back again. Here's why I think there's some merit to that. We know they're going back to the temple system. We know they're being tempted to reenter the sacrificial system. He's going to argue extensively in chapters 8, 9, and 10 about this is a better priesthood. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. So look, so look at the key would be the phrase here in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. So the other possible reading is perhaps these people are not pressing on to further teaching because they keep getting resaved every week. Because under the sacrificial system, you kept needing more sacrifices, more sacrifices, more sacrifices, more sacrifices. So the other possibility would be you're dealing with a context where his, his readers have not pressed on to maturity because every week they keep getting saved. And so let us, because no, look at this. Um, not going to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, and what is the foundation? Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about washings. So they're getting saved and baptized every week. Um, and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And these things we'll do if God permits. Why should we go on? Why should we press on past these things? Because it's impossible in the case of those who, and see in this reading, I, I'm not saying I buy this reading. I, th- I got to study this more. But those are the two possible readings. One, it's, it's, it's people who almost were Christians. The other is dealing with the, their arc. He's assuming their logic. Stop getting saved every week. If you were able to lose your salvation, you'd never be able to get it back. If Jesus wasn't good enough the first time, if his sacrifice wasn't sufficient the first time, it won't be the second time. So let's move on to maturity and stop doing this. That's the other possibility of Hebrews 6. There may be other takes, but I think those are the two main readings on it. Um, I haven't studied it enough to be dogmatic. I know it's shocking, me not being dogmatic, but... That's... I used to think six. I know Daniel goes the other way with it, and so I want to talk to him some more. Um, so, okay, we got... Yes, Jeremy, then, is, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. is the take that R.C. Sproul has on that one of those two, or does I don't he... know R.C. I have not heard R.C. on this position. Okay, because I know he doesn't take the traditional one, and in light of the Reformation, I wondered if okay. you knew that. Okay. Um, the other thing is this issue... Mm-hmm is what led me to become confirmed in election. Okay. Because yeah, I yeah. thought, if God has taken the time to save me mm. and I couldn't save myself, then I can't keep myself. So I know if his promises are true, like in First Peter, sealed for the day of redemption and yeah. delivered, then I'm assured that I will not fall away. Right. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. This was one of the issues that really helped me uh, become 
Yeah, just become more sure of my salvation gotcha. rather than yeah. less sure. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yours, sir. You know, on the um, Hebrews 6, yes. when you get down to the end of the paragraph, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through the promise practice, I mean, um, through faith and practice inherit the promise. Hmm. So, you know, when the writer of Hebrews is encouraging um, the believers and warning those who don't believe right. because they're going back to Judaism, right. um, you know, to continue to watch those who are being faithful, those who are practicing and who have inherited, inherited um, eternal life. Right. So we don't go off the rails. And I yeah. think when we look in um, 70 AD, when Jesus gives the prophecy of the temple being destroyed, yeah. well, could you imagine if there was a temple in Jerusalem today and they still had the sacrificial system going on. Yeah. How many of us would be tempted? You know, if you really want to be a good Christian, you know, if you really, right. you hear right. people say, well, you know, I want to go to Israel so I can be baptized in the Jordan. Well, if you get baptized in the Mississippi or your bathtub, it doesn't make a difference. You're not any more saved right. than if you got saved in the Jordan River. So I think that's, you know, I think when we look at this, it's an encouragement to let right. us know that there are those who we can look to these apostles, those who were saved and, you know, and see that their faith is, is an encouragement for us, but also right. looking at the scriptures to see that what God has done and taking right. the whole counsel of scripture, not just passages and pulling them out, right. but the whole counsel of scripture and, and following that. Amen. Amen. Let me use an illustration that I used 14 years ago um, in dealing with this. Oh, did, is there another hand that I'm missing? Let me... Well, anyway, I'm going to use this illustration anyway. Um, uh, Al Ostrander gave me the name from those those corrugated indentations on the side of the highway, rumble strips. You know what I'm talking about? The warnings in Scripture, and there are there are a few of them. There's, I mean, you can't pretend they're not there. And this is getting back to balance. The rumble strip, I, I equate them to rumble strips. Rumble strips on the highway serve two functions, I can think of at least. One, when I'm driving... They give me a boundary. They help me figure out where the lane is. When I'm not driving on them, I just see them, and they, they help make sure I'm in the center of the lane. The other function they serve is if I'm falling asleep at the wheel, as I start to leave the lane, <laughs> boom, 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 you know, and then you're, you, you ever have a thing where you're starting to fall asleep and you, it, it's scary. Well, I think these warning passages, like Hebrews 6, Hebrews has got a couple of them, um, but it's not the only book with them. Do the same thing. When you're walking in the light, when you're trying to be, a, when, you're, when you're living out your faith, when you're trying to pursue Jesus, when you're trying to be faithful, when you're confessing your sin, hey, there's this boundary. I, I, you referenced it earlier. Hey, if I'm able to go leave my wife, my kids, become a Scientologist, spend 20 years there and die happy, you know, I've, I've gone outside the boundary. For other times in our lives, perhaps when we're actually leaving the straight and narrow path, when we're leaving the light, starting to walk off in the darkness, these passages keep you up at night, and they should. Amen. One of the ways God shepherds us and keeps us faithful is through his word, through these very warnings. You know what I mean? So they're meant to do that in those places. Now, we've got to get this balance because God does not intend his children who are trying to please him to be lying awake at night terrified by these warning passes. He also doesn't intend 
lukewarm, half-hearted, sluggish, and worldly Christians to ignore them. And so the balancing act is to, what's, I think this is what Luther said, to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. To sing and sting, for God's word, to sing and sting. Um, to, to heal and to wound. And so that's, that's always the balance. And so if you, if you just focus on the warnings, you're going to end up with the people who are terrified, never having any assurance. That isn't, fa- that isn't healthy. On the other hand, you can have a bunch of worldly, lukewarm, Laodicean believers who think they're, you know, they're, they're rich, wealthy, blind, and, and seeing when they're blind, naked, and poor, right? And it's always going to come back to balance. It's always going to come back to keeping certain truths in tension and balance, which is why I started with that paragraph in Hebrews. We need to be able to say the beginning and the end. Holy brothers, partakers of heavenly calling, and we are Christ if we make it to the end. One paragraph, boom. And we've got to be able to say both. And, and you see how holding on to one and letting go of the other is what Rome did. And holding on to one and letting go of the other is what um, I think a fair amount of Western evangelicalism does, practically speaking. And so trying to get the, the center of the road there. Other questions? We've got about 10 minutes. 10 minutes on this. I have a couple. Oh. I just wanted to wait until everyone was, was done with theirs before I brought mine up. Go, Matthew. Um, yeah. One is lame. It's just, uh, what was the blink for uh, oh. B, it's like biblical assurance of salvation under uh, okay, point so two, like the second point, his spirit testifies within us. What's the blank for that one? Oh, um, comfort. I wanted to get my points alliterated. So I have cognitive assurance, comfort assurance, and conduct. Cool. So, so that would be that would be things like experientially feeling peace with God, experientially His Spirit testifying with our spirit, and, and that, that's real assurance, and it's meaningful to us, right? But that also waxes and wanes. There are times when I feel closer to God than at other times. There are times when you can echo the psalmist, "Why aren't you listening? Why won't you hear me?" I mean, there are times where you feel further from God, you know. Um, the Psalms speak to all those times and places. But absolutely, one of the measures of assurance is his spirit testifying in our, with our spirit, his love poured out in our hearts. Yes. Okay. Yeah. My other uh, few questions have to do primarily with uh, the, was it the, uh, point? Um, the third point, our conduct, which mm-hmm. is, uh, he said, is one of the major points. Yeah. And one of the big points you mentioned was, uh, you know, the fruits in our lives. And so not trying to come at this from like, the other side where it's, you know, we're justified by works in our faith, but what yeah. does uh, justified works, I guess, look like? What does it sure. feel like? How can we know if uh, internally if we're, this is something I'm just doing to yeah. to meet this standard? Um, like, if I'm not seeing a ton of works in my life, is it just because I don't have an opportunity for them, or should I be seeking them out? Is the right. desire to seek them out indicative of me being like, sure. I'm not doing this, Should I, I need to do this so sure. that... I'm acting like a Christian, or is it a desire, a genuine desire to do good, or right. how can you differentiate between those? If that makes well, sense. I would, my, my kids ask me, they're getting to be the ages now, they're making professions of faith, and I've encouraged them, read First John and look at the different categories. I, there's other places in First John, but First John, as a shorter book, is probably the most comprehensive on this issue. And I'll just give a tour of some of them, right? So chapter one of First John, there's all these different points to be looking at. And places, branches where I'd be looking for some level of fruit. And maybe think of it that way. You're looking at different areas, different categories. And am I seeing growth? Am I seeing signs of life here? So in 1 John chapter 1, there's the issue of how do you 
do, do you admit your sin? Do you confess your sin? Or do you deny you have it? And so he says, um, this is the message we've heard from him, verse 5, and proclaim to you, God is light, and him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So God's in the light. If you're not in the light, you're not having fellowship with God. doesn't mean you're not a Christian. You're, just, you're not having fellowship with him. So anyone who's, who's walking in darkness and yet says they have a close relationship with God is lying. Right? So there's, there's one test. Um, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is unknown. So if you won't admit your sin, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth isn't in you. Um, but, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my first, when I'm, and frequently I'm doing counseling with people, I'm looking along these lines. I want to tell me about your, your, are you, how often, is it a pattern in practice of your life that when God shows you sin in your life, you, you name it and you confess it and you, and you turn to him with it? Or do you refuse to do that? If I meet somebody who's refusing to call sin, sin, who's justifying themselves, that's not good. So there's one axis. How do you deal with your sin? When you see it, do you call it what it is? Do you confess it? And are you turning back to God with it, right? So that'd be one place I'd be looking at. Then simply the good you know to do. We all know, have some idea of what God wants us to do. Um, you may not have a perfect idea. You've got to study Scripture more. But in 1 John 2, um, but that, there's a passage there in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Here's where Greek does help a little bit. Um, I was wondering, what on earth does that mean? The verb tereo means to guard. It can be used as a military term. So keeping here is not like you ever break them. Rather, think of the analogy. I'll use a sports analogy. Oh, Greg would be proud of me. But Greg's over in Jake's class. So. Um, no. but think, of the, think of the football player with the ball in his arm running down the field. He may get knocked down. He is utilizing his energy to hold on to to keep that ball. That's the idea. By this we know that we've come to know him, that we are guarding, that we are endeavoring to keep his commandments. So do I see, in my own life, a growing effort I'm making more effort today than I was, say, six months ago to do the good I know to do, to obey God. Or am I making less effort? Have I just sort of given up? You know what? It's useless fighting that sin. I just surrender. Um, Which one is that? So I'd be looking along those axes. Am I more and more, am I fighting sin more strongly? Am Am I using more energy, more effort, or less? Is my war with the flesh stronger or weaker? Something like that. Um, then you get to th- verse 215, right? So here's another one. What's my relationship with the world? I didn't read this one this morning, but another black and white statement. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Am I more entranced with, more enthralled by, more intoxicated by this world and the things it offers, or less? Am I, am I more controlled by eternal realities? You know? And so that, that's, that's another metric that you can be looking at. And, um, and you can just keep going through. Do I love the brethren in chapter 3? Lo- am I growing in my love for other believers? Or do I find more and more my closest friends and my deepest fellowship comes from people who hate my God? Like, th- those would be other questions that I'd be asking. So it's about just in First John alone. And then there's confessional, doctrinal tests. Whoever denies that the Son has come in the flesh is the Antichrist. So First John gives a number of, like if you think of a wheel with spokes, a number of spokes to check along. And so I'd, I'd just be doing an evaluation on each of those. Am I seeing signs of life and growth? 
It's not like a, a measuring stick of are you this far along or this far along. But does that help or do you want, or are you trying to ask something more clarified than that? Mine is just like, what is this in practice? And I, I guess it comes from a desire just to like want to see a line, even though I know the line doesn't, a metric you should follow, but like, what, is these, what do these things practically look like? Look, practically speaking, and I, I don't want to put your answer on tape for you, but practically speaking, if I was talking to you, I'd say, okay, tell me, if you asked me, if you were saying, hey, Jeremy, help me sort through this, I'd say, okay, Matthew, tell me about what your confession of sin looks like. How, how regular is it? How often? When's the last time you confess sin? On what type of, is this a part of your life? And if you said something like, I don't know when the last time I confessed sin in prayer to the Lord was last year, I'm like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, okay. Um, tell, me, t- tell me about your fight, your struggle with sin. Do you, are you fighting? Have you had victory? Have you had losses? How are you doing? And if you're talking about a vibrant struggle and battle, awesome. The issue isn't that you lost here or there. If you're like, actually, I can't remember the last time I resisted temptation. I just do whatever my desires tell me to do. That, that's not good. You know? And we just sort of go through. And then... You know, we'd be looking for signs of life there, and then over time, looking for growth in those signs of life. So it's not about it's not about um, how much you know. Were you victorious five times or six? It's that you're growing. Getting back to uh, go, go to go to Second Peter. We'll close on on Second Peter. I really think because as a as a new believer, I quickly realized First John talks about this with some really great clarity. But because it's so black and white, I mean, you get to some of them. No one born of God continues to sin. Okay, how much sinning is continuing? Right? Am I going to claim I don't continue to sin? I don't know. Um, that's kind of a bold claim. Second Peter 1, I found incredibly helpful. So, um, picking up in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So here's another sevenfold metric to be evaluating, seven fruit that he's, he's listing, that you are to be diligent to add to your faith. So he's, I love the fact that he's making clear, we're justified by faith alone. This isn't getting you saved, but after you come to faith, be diligent to be adding in these, these things. Why? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, again, it's just the direction. It's not a bar that you meet. It's not a holiness level that gets you in. It's growth. And, that, and it may be tough to see which way am I moving in, right? Okay. Well, maybe precisely what God wants you to do is get more of your attention and be more diligent to attend to these things. Um, and he goes on to say in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So confirming, this is why I said assurance is conditional. Here, it requires diligence. You want to confirm your calling and your election? You can. It'll take some diligence, right? And that's, that's implied, the implicit logic of that verse. Be all the more diligent to confirm. And there are going to be some people who are saved who due to a lack of diligence are going to be left going, I don't know. That's, again, the implied logic of this passage. Be diligent to confirm your calling. You do that by, by being diligent to supplement your faith with these seven virtues. And as you see growth, you confirm your calling and election. 
Now, that's not the only way you do it, but that's the primary, I think the main bread and butter, center of the road, biblical response is, the tree is known by its fruit, what type of fruit do you bring? Getting the relationship of fruit and root is critical. We're not justified by our good deeds. That's where Rome would say, no, no, those fruit are actually part and parcel with your justification. Because they would define justification as God actually making you in practice to be just. We, we would call that sanctification. We'd call that growth in Christ, right? And the reason it matters is my hope when I stand before God is not, look at my good life I lived. It's Jesus Christ. If someone would say, well, what makes you think you were you joined with Jesus Christ by faith? I'd say, look at the work of God's grace in my life over these last 20 years. How else can you explain the change of desires, the change of habits, the, the change of the transformation of life? Clearly, God was at work, his, his hands. Not that I'm perfect, but I, I mean, this is John Owen, man. I'm not, no, John Newton. I'm not who I should be. I'm even not who I could be. I'm certainly not who I will be, but praise God, I'm not who I was. And we see those marks, and we, we gain confidence. If you're looking pretty close to like you were 10 years ago, that should get your attention, and that's as it should be. <laughs> you know, and, and God will use those things to, to cause us to become diligent if we've been lax. You know? um, we're at time. We can talk somewhere after this, Matthew. Godspeed. Tonight, annual meeting. Thank you.